Coincidentally, I had a chance to meet President Clinton in January 2000 at Davos, kind of big World Economic Forum. He was the keynote speaker, and so I kind of had, you know, the usual waiting line where you have your like 30-second meet and greet with the president. And I pitched him the search engine idea in those 30 seconds. I basically said, almost literally, I don't remember word for word, but basically, I think there should be a search engine for the federal government, and it would be great for the people and for the Congress. And I think we can do it while you're still in office. And in fact, there weren't many projects that he could get done with a year left that were meaningful and would actually make a difference in his legacy. And so I thought this might get his attention, and it did get his attention. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Aid Evolved podcast about technology, poverty, and health. I'll be speaking with individuals who are fighting poverty and improving healthcare, trying to see whether technology can help us do it better. My goal is to share the human stories, the hopes, the risks, and the fears, as well as the successes along the way. And in the end, perhaps we'll be able to piece together some lessons learned for those of us trying to do the same. In today's episode, I am thrilled to be speaking with Eric Brewer. Eric is a remarkable man. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of California in Berkeley. He's a Google Fellow and Vice President of Infrastructure, and he's founder of Ink to Me, a company that made it to the NASDAQ 100 within four years and which has shaped the backbone of the modern-day web. He's also one of the few people who can claim to have gained and then lost a billion dollars. In today's episode, we talk about the work that Eric has done over many years to harness technology and technology research to do some good. We reminisce on the foundational work that he did creating a new space of research called Information Communication Technology for Development and the creation of a research group named TIER at Berkeley. That's TIER, Technology and Infrastructure for Emerging Regions. I also couldn't resist and spent some time probing Eric about his work to conceive and launch USA.gov, the first website for the federal government of the United States. I know many of us in this space are building new tools, but the holy grail of such technology tools is when we can transfer them to a local government to run and maintain and scale. It was fascinating to me to learn the ways in which Eric navigated one of the trickiest governments in the world, the United States, in order to bring better access to government data to the people of the United States. I think there's many great lessons here for those of us trying to do the same in other countries around the world. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We begin with Eric's retelling of his work to conceive and launch USA.gov. Around 2000, I was you know, still at Ink to Me, this company I founded that was doing search engines, many of which your readers would have used whether they knew it or not, whether that was Microsoft or AOL at the time or Yahoo or Hotbot. <laughs> and so I knew a lot about search and had built search engines. And I kind of felt that it was a shame that there wasn't a great search engine for all of the public information of the federal government. So I'd been thinking about how to do a search engine for all of the online content of the government. And then I realized that it actually could be done pretty quickly because the technology existed. We mostly just had to visit all of the government websites, collect that information, kind of a centralized database. And was that part of what 
Tumi's business model was at the time, or was this a personal passion of yours? It wasn't really. Doing search certainly was a big deal for Ink to Me, but this project was kind of on the side because <laughs> it really had to be done with the government. And the big reason for that was I didn't really want it to be a product. I wanted it to be something the government ran itself, right? It's public information. The government is capable of running a search engine for that data, and they should. They're the right group to do it. That makes a lot of sense. I love how you describe it as a side project, you know, building the government search engine. So you had this idea. Where did you take it? So coincidentally, I had a chance to meet President Clinton in January 2000 at Davos, the kind of big World Economic Forum. <laughs> he was the keynote speaker and I was an invited guest as well. And so I kind of had, you know, the usual waiting line where you have your like 30 second meet and greet with the president. So I was thinking about how to spend my 30 seconds, and I basically pitched him the search engine idea in those 30 seconds. I would love to hear what that 30-second pitch sounded like. I'm imagining, you know, you're, you're there, there's a lineup of a bunch of folks, and you show up in front of him, and you're like, hey, Bill, this is what I can do for you. Is that right? Pretty much. I basically said, almost literally, I don't remember it word for word, but basically, I think there should be a, a search engine for the federal government, and it would be great for the people and for the Congress. And I think we can do it while you're still in office. Wild. And in fact, there weren't many projects that he could get done with a year left that were meaningful and would actually make a difference in his legacy. And so I thought this might get his attention, and it did get his attention. Oh, wow. Why do you think you want him over so quickly? I think, you know, internet was a sexy topic. It would be a good distraction from various problems he was having at the time. <laughs> and again, it's something that he could take credit for legitimately while still in office. And again, he didn't have many such things at the time. You can't really start new projects in general your last year. So it's kind sense. of whatever you have is what you have. That makes sense. So that pitch is in January 2000. He then connects me with some aides from the White House. And we meet again in February, not with Clinton, but with all his staff and aides, and end up getting kind of partnered with the General Services Administration, which is kind of like the office of the government that deals with all the mundane stuff like huh. printing things and the budget. The budget, you know, just running the whole show. <laughs> they're the right group to run the search engine. But they're also nice because they know all the agencies. Hmm. And that ended up being really helpful. In fact, the guy there, Dave Barham, who later actually co-won an award with hmm. me for this project, was super helpful. Nice. But I also had the backing of the president. So Yeah, that'll help. <laughs> you know, once he's on your side, <laughs> that, that gets rid of a lot of obstacles. <laughs> for sure. And we actually ended up creating a uh, nonprofit for the purposes of this that basically bought and donated the servers. And then we, we trained the staff how to set up a search engine. And that part probably took six months. And then the hardest part was we were getting ready to launch. We had all the websites crawled. And we realized that there were various places that had essentially inappropriate content that the government wasn't aware of. What? kind of inappropriate content, can I ask? Oh, like uh, transcripts from chat groups that included profanity. Huh. They were on the websites. They were already public, but because they weren't easy to find, nobody knew about them. Oh, boy. But once you make them easy to find, it's a problem. <laughs> I can imagine. You must have covered a lot of great content in there. <laughs> so the good news is I needed, in the end, the help from the agencies. But the only help I needed was go clean up various messes in your agency before this goes public. <laughs> 
I'm not creating the mess for you. I'm just the messenger, but you need to fix it. <laughs> it makes you wonder what else is hidden in the annals of government websites elsewhere. Yeah. Did you, did, was this whole effort paid for by the government, by GSA, by out of your own pocket? The first version was paid out of my own pocket because I just wanted to get it done without having to go through procurement. Hmm. And in fact, the foundation had a fixed lifetime. The idea was, we'll create this foundation, we'll do this project, and then this foundation is going to cease to exist. And if you want this project to continue, you're going to have to take it over and fund it, which is exactly what happened. Oh, fascinating. So that's quite the personal project, Eric. And I'd love to hear about that transition. I think that's something a lot of us definitely struggle with. Like, How did you end up moving this thing from something you were running to something that the government really owned? Well, in the end, they did put it out for bid, but the bid was for the replacement system. And by then, they knew a lot. They knew how to run it. They knew what they wanted. And lots of people could bid on it. And they had some bidders. And I don't remember who won it. An actual company took over running it. And and it's still running today. In fact, it's been expanded greatly to cover not just search, but things like all the Smithsonian art is now on it. And various processes and procurement things are on it. So it's it's USA.gov. You can see it. Today, it's been in existence since we launched it in September 2000. That's phenomenal. That's great to hear. And, and it's interesting, even that point about how the government passed it out to tender. Um, when that happens in the circles that I run in, I think a lot, of, a lot of my peers feel a sense of defeat or sadness that someone else has taken over the system that they built. But I think what you're saying there about the government capacity and the government know-how and the processes is key. You know, whether or not it was your technology or someone else's technology, the key is that the people of the United States can now access government information easily on their website through the search portal. And technology is always changing anyways. It's not like we expect any one system to stick around for 50 years or 100 years. So you must be very proud of that. No, it worked out well, and I am proud of it. The biggest users are journalists and congressional staffers. Huh. And I didn't realize that going in, but that's that's two great user groups to have. <laughs> the public uses it some, but if you look at the actual, where do the queries come from, it's those two groups primarily. That is fascinating. But they are representing the people literally, so I think it's all, it's all good. Listening to Eric talk, you might think that everything came easy for this guy. But let me tell you a little bit more about what was going on in Eric's life when this all happened. As you just heard, Eric met President Clinton in January of 2000, and together they launched USA.gov in September 2000. Anyone in the tech sector at the time remembers March 2000. This is when the dot-com bubble hit its peak. Eric's company, Inc. to Me, was valued at that time at $25 billion. You heard me, not million, $25 billion. At the same time that he was working with President Clinton on the launch of USA.gov, the dot-com bubble was bursting. And Eric, like everybody in the tech sector, was watching the stock price of his company plummet. And he needed to start making some really tough decisions about what to do with this company and this incredible group of people that he'd brought together. In the second half of our conversation, Eric mentions 9-11. For the younger listeners in our audience, He's referring to September 11th, 2001, the day that two passenger airplanes flew into the World Trade Center in New York. Pay attention to the part where he talks about the need for hope. In 2003, Eric sold Inc. to me to Yahoo for $240 million. This would be less than 1% of its value in 2000. 
Many people would end the story here. After all, what do you do after you've founded a company that has already achieved anything that founders dream of? But not Eric. In the second half of our conversation, we dive in around 2003 and chat about how Eric picked himself up and threw his life into a completely different direction. At the peak of the bubble, when I had this paper billion dollars, I started thinking about philanthropy and how I would donate money. Not many people, I think, can lay claim to, to those kinds of resources. It's not as useful as the actual billion dollars, but it was still, <laughs> still useful in the end because it actually gave me a way to think bigger, essentially. Absolutely. That was more useful than I would have guessed. <laughs> so I started thinking about how I would donate money and in the end decided that something about technology for developing countries was going to be a focus because I didn't think it was well covered or well understood. Hmm. And this is before mobile phones were really big in Africa, for example. So I could see them coming, but they weren't there yet. Hmm. There just wasn't much good use of technology in general. A lot of focus on governance and economics. Interesting. Micro and macro. Right. But not really use of technology to improve the quality of life. You came into a fair amount of wealth and you thought, Okay, because I have this, I should figure out what to do with it. And that's what brought you to the space? That's what brought me to the space originally. And of course, I ended up not getting all that money, not that I <laughs> do at least okay. But eventually I had a shift in mindset. Well, I can still do this work, but I have to do it through my academic channel and not through philanthropy. And that's when I started exploring, you know, what's the appetite for academic work on technology for developing regions and I got mixed senses, but I felt like it's worth a try. And so I actually wrote some of the parts of the grand challenges that something the National Science Foundation does to understand things that might invest in in the future. And they did feel hmm. like this was plausible. And part of the argument I, wake, I made was uh, technology used well is, is going to improve the quality of life, but it also imparts a sense of hope. Hmm. And I feel like hope is what we needed, especially after 9-11. The idea that there's yes. a future that, that was optimistic huh. and that there was a path to participation in the world that was better than previous paths. I think that hope was a big part of it for me. That's beautiful. That's phenomenal. And in the end, that was a big part of it for um, the National Science Foundation as well. So huh. in the end, they did fund this as the original funding of the TIER project. Good to know. Did you have an idea of the kinds of things that you wanted to test or did you get the grant and then figure that out? No, we had a whole agenda. Some of it was right and some of it was wrong. What was wrong? Well, let's see. So for example, we had a lot of folks early on on the Grameen phone women and that project. Huh. We didn't do the project, but I found it inspirational. That project, just to let people know, was essentially phone ladies, they were always ladies for reasons we could talk about, would get a microloan to buy a cell phone for their village. And then they would rent the cell phone per minute to their neighbors so that their neighbors had access to phones. It is how I learned about microfinance and why do you make loans and who pays for loans and who doesn't, right? It's one we use as an example. I actually went to Bangladesh and I met Muhammad Yunus a couple times at different stages huh. before he won the Nobel Prize. What's he like? Oh, he's awesome. <laughs> he's awesome. <laughs> that is what people say. But I think you didn't end up working much in microfinance. Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. What direction did Tier take 
in those first couple of years, particularly when you when you got that grant, you're like, okay, hey, now we have to do all the things that we talked about. Yeah, we d- did a few things. We did end up working in wireless quite a bit. The Grameen case was a little misleading in the sense that the only reason the phone ladies could do what they're doing is that Bangladesh is so has such high population density that there's already existing cell towers near the villages. So you just need the phone mm. to give phone access. Most countries, right. including even India, but certainly most of Africa, is sparsely populated and there is no cell tower nearby. And so the same system wouldn't huh. work. So one of our early focuses was on exactly how do you get wireless connectivity into a sparsely populated region? And the claim Hmm. was if you could get wireless into a sparsely populated region, it could generate revenue that could then bring other kinds of infrastructure, things like water and electricity into that region. Hmm. So that was a hypothesis I had around 2003 or so, which I call the wireless hypothesis. <laughs> and that did, in fact, prove to be true. If you look now in India, the cell towers went in first. They actually brought in electricity to power the cell towers. Originally, they were diesel generators, but now they're mostly connected to the grid. So the side benefits there for roads and for electricity to the areas that started out mm-hmm. is the fringe of cellular connectivity. Right. And there's some great studies um, from GSMA about how the introduction of, of connectivity of data and such does have a direct correlation with economic improvement in the communities that they serve. So there definitely is something real there about bringing connectivity to a village. But you were saying that the, the cellular towers are not available or not as dense as they needed to be in Africa. So where did you go from there? We looked at using essentially long distance Wi-Fi. So it's the same Wi-Fi in your house, but we had to make some technical changes to make it go very long distances. Long being like Mm. 40 kilometers, 50 kilometers. We later set the world record, which is about, I think, 379 kilometers, which is so far you have to be on two mountain ranges, one at each end to be able to see that far due to the curvature of the earth. That sounds fun. Did you send some grad students to climb some mountains? (laughs) No, I wish we did. Well, actually, that's not true. We did. Grad students were involved in many of these things. That one was done in Venezuela, and I believe with some tier grad students. But we had a friend in Venezuela that set it up. The things we do for research. Yes, that was that was fun, for sure. But, but the thing to draw from that is really you're limited by how far you can see, right? the line of sight. And that actually is still true for these kinds of networks. So that once we got that working, we eventually found a partner, the Aravind Eye Hospital, where we could use this to essentially connect rural villages to a central hospital in the region and use that for video conferencing. Oh, wow. And you know, you say you got that working. It being a, a research project, were you always confident that you would get it working? You know, Was this the kind of problem where like, you might have wrestled with it and you might have hit a, a wall? I was pretty sure we'd get it working. Getting it working badly was pretty easy. <laughs> That's encouraging. Getting it to work with high bandwidth took more effort, mm. but that made it a good project for CS grad students. And in fact, now you can buy gear off the shelf that does these things. But there was quite a bit of research to how to get it, not just to go the distance, but to actually have high bandwidth. Nice. So you said you found a partnership with Aravind Eye Hospital in in India. How did that connection come about? They're a great institution. So we were talking about them in general. Like their, Their claim to fame is they do high quality eye care at low cost in the poorest areas of India, mostly in the South. Right. India has the most blind people in the world, if I recall correctly. That sounds right. At the time, something like 
7% of the population had access to eye care, right? A, a small number. Yikes. Which is scary given how important eye care is to having uh, having a protective life to so many different kinds of employment. It's a really important issue. And a lot of the eye problems were easily treatable. The obvious one is glasses, which people can understand, and that's relatively easy to address. But it turns out you can also address cataracts. They had super low-cost cataract surgery. They address glaucoma, they address diabetic retinopathy, which is basically eye degeneration due to diabetes. But all those things require that the patients get diagnosed and in most cases require that they actually go to the hospital. Which I imagine is hard for a lot of these people. They don't go to the hospital mm, in general. Right. So they had been experimenting with these things called eye camps, where basically they would take a van full of doctors, bring it out to a rural area with some advertising and try to get as many people from that area to come get looked at, right? learn about eye care and hygiene and diabetes, things like that. Right. And it was kind of successful, but it had some really basic problems. Hmm. One problem was it's not a great use of the doctor's time because you have to actually transport them, set everything up. You're taking them away from the hospital during that time and also the travel mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And the roads, I'm sure, were not great. Not easy. No. And there's also a problem where there's like, there's no follow-up. So you know, if you can't treat the patient right then and there, you probably won't ever see them again. And so the idea with the video conference is to basically set up essentially one room or two room clinics with what I'll call a nurse. We'll talk about the nurse in a minute, but basically that you could go to the eye center in your village, talk to a doctor over video conference, get a diagnosis, maybe get glasses or, you know, simple medicine for glaucoma or for conjunctivitis, which is eye infection. Mm -hmm. But the big thing was that diagnosis, because then you could find the people with glaucoma and cataracts and actually convince them to go to the hospital. And the big benefit of the doctors is they stay in the hospital and they can do quite a few patients because each one is short. Right. And they would just set some part of their afternoon aside. They basically, most doctors would do surgeries and things like that in the morning and in the afternoon, they do some amount of video conferencing with these rural clinics. Yeah, and I, I know I'm aware that it's a the issue of having the appropriate medical personnel um, in rural or even peri-urban areas is is a huge challenge. You know, doctors just like everyone else, they want to be want to be close to resources, facilities, schools for their kids. So they're just not out in the villages or not in all the places where they should be. And oftentimes, there's an excess of them in the urban centers, even as they're missing in the rural areas. Yeah, so I, I do expect video conferencing to be fundamental for healthcare for quite some time. It's, it already is to some degree, but and there's still more we can do on that front. Mm-hmm. But as many people have experienced recently, you can do quite a bit with a doctor over Zoom <laughs> or Google Hangouts. So We're all learning that now. It's clearly working, yes. <laughs> so you were connected with Aravind Eye Hospital and you had this Wi-Fi system. How did you start working together? What were some of the the early things that you tried? Was there anything that didn't work in your early collaboration? Well, it did take us a while to figure out that the video conference was the right project to work on. I don't remember what else we looked at. We did look at computer assistance for looking at diabetic retinopathy. That makes sense. That's a problem solvable by AI. Right. And we did a little bit of that. That actually got done by other students later and actually even later by Google uh, a few years ago. So it's been an interesting problem for a while. Yeah. 
For sure. I imagine maybe that should be revisited with all the technologies we have now for AI. I think it has been pretty effectively in the last few years. I can imagine. At the time we did it, we didn't have great AI, obviously, but we still made some progress. But it wasn't as impactful as the video conferencing, which is why we ended up focusing on that instead. And a lot of that is just have to have a student in the vicinity talking to the doctors and administrators. So I think the most important Mm -hmm. lesson from Tier, in my mind, is this idea that whatever thing you're trying to do to help this group, you're going to be wrong the first time. You just are. (laughs) You can't understand their system well enough to know how to fix it. And if you think you do, you're just, you're just fooling yourself. And so the important thing is not to fix it the first time. The important thing is to start the conversation, attempt something quickly, fail quickly, (laughs) attempt something again. And I would tell people, I want us to be trying something every three months or every six months. Nice. It doesn't have to be a big step, but I want the feedback loop. I really like that framing. You know, the first time it's just not going to work. When a lot of people come up against that failure, they hesitate, they stop. You know, in the aid sector, there's a lot of papering over the cracks, <laughs> as it were. But once you know, once you go in understanding that the first time it's not going to work out, uh, then you approach it with a with a different mindset. The other thing that you're talking about there, Eric, is that ethos of experimentation, which again, on the research side, there's, there's a lot of that. And that's part of what leads to the innovation. Uh, I often worry that that's something that we might be missing uh, or, or starting to miss as the aid sector gets more mature in this space. And, and everyone talks about only using proven technologies and nobody talks about sort of thinking, is this the right approach? Should we be trying a few different things? I'd really like to see that ethos be adopted by the aid community broadly. And you can see it in various places. Easterly talks about searching for solutions. That's kind of the same bottom-up view that I have, mm. where you're not really any top-down approach is going to be wrong. You just don't know why it's going to be wrong. <laughs> I'm definitely going to quote you on this one. Right. So you can top-down fund it. You can do lots of things to make it better. But at the end of the day, you need to get on-the-ground experience with a feedback loop where you're learning the real problems. And we just see this over and over. And in fact, the aid committee tends to make it worse by the people that write the reports on these systems are the people that were paid to do them. That's so the true. You write reports at the end of your project and all the reports are always glowing. It's not surprising. So true. That just leads to, if not misinformation, at least hiding what the real issues were and making the next attempt by somebody else harder. I could not agree with you more, Eric, on that front. Speaking of this innovation and this testing that you did, do you have any thoughts about how it moves from the research realm? So I know you had this this five-year project, you had this collaboration with Aravind Eye Hospital. To my understanding, even today, they're continuing with this broadband connections, teleconsultations. There's a lot of things that don't make the leap from an academic project to adoption in the real world. Do you have any perspectives or thoughts on how that happens successfully, either from Aravind or from your other experiences? That's something I've thought about a lot, and I don't think it's easy, and no one should fool themselves mm. to think it's easy. But I do think there are some lessons from what we've done. I would say the first thing is you have to solve the whole problem, which is not typically best done by a research group. Mm. So you know, figuring out long-distance Wi-Fi or medical records, those are good tasks for a technical research group. Mm. But later, when you want to have real impact, for example, we had to do things like we had to find 
third parties that can maintain video links, right? You can't use grad students to maintain video links. Yeah. Right? But they're going to need maintenance. Yeah. And you need to actually factor the cost of maintenance into the hospital's operating plan so that it's funded for the long term. Definitely. And you need to train people both on how to set up the equipment on both ends and actually how to do the link management <laughs> diagnosis. So we actually had to do a lot of things that were transition oriented, but they mostly came down to training or helping find third parties that could do the right job. Because a lot of times the group you're helping can't evaluate third parties to decide if they'd be good partners or not. Right. And that I think is, I mean, it's lovely to hear you say that coming as you do from your your background as the head of the research lab and as, as a professor at Berkeley. There's a lot of academics in this space and there's a lot of these projects along. And I definitely want to support the ones of those that will succeed. But there, there is that transition, you know, who's going to maintain it, who's who's going to create sustainable, sustainable business model that'll provide the support staff that you need year after year. I guess I'm, I'm curious to understand how you were able to do that. I mean, like, did you have the resources in the grant that you had? Or was it just, you know, a passion that you and your grad students continued to pursue, even outside of the research funding that you had to get the system, the legs it needed to live on? I think we've done it three different ways and they're all useful. So I'll just walk through the three. The Aravin was really just the hard work of a small number of grad students and good hospital staff because Aravin is a pretty capable entity themselves, super capable. I believe it. They're already doing hundreds of thousands of cataract surgeries at low cost and they're making their own eyeglasses. And actually, I think they're making their own literal eye lenses, the what? replacement lens for your eyeball wow. they were also making. So they were super competent. They just needed guidance on what they needed to do in this part of the business and how to model it. Sounds very impressive. And they were making it sustainable financially, and they were good at understanding kind of the scalability of financial models. So in that case, we, we had a good partner. We just had to bridge some gaps and help train them and help them mm, find partners. They sound great. Another example was came out of my student Curtis Heimerl's work and, and Shadi Hassan on how to do rural cellular networks, where actually you have your own cellular base station for your community, and it may not be well connected to the rest of the internet and phone system, but it's connected enough. But even so, its local value is high. Totally different project than the first one. That one actually led to a a company called Indaga that was later bought by Facebook. So that was a for-profit company founded by two students and the postdoc, Kashif Ali, and again, bought by wow. Facebook. They're still doing things related to that That's in awesome. various ways. In the Philippines now, started in Indonesia, mostly works in the Philippines now because Philippines has thousands of islands ah. that are inhabited but don't have great connectivity. That makes a lot of sense. And then the third way is we did do a nonprofit that's kind of a, a transition org called the Novo Group. And its purpose is really to help technologies transition out of the university into something else. And we have one project that's come out of that, which is basically a, a high bandwidth rural wireless for the US. And they're operating in Mendocino now, rural Mendocino, California. Nice. And it's, it's uh, been a boon for COVID, obviously, because it's a great way to get connectivity in this area that didn't have many options before. Nice. The people that live there are wealthy enough to afford it. They just literally didn't have anything to buy other than satellites. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. That project was geared through the DeNovo Group as a way to 
deal with the problems that universities are not good at dealing with. Like, for example, it's, not, it's very difficult for a university to collect a subscriber payment for wireless. <laughs> I can imagine. Right? And then pay it out to parties, right? That's a complete nightmare. So you can't do that in the university setting. Huh. Plus, there's a whole bunch of liability and risk management stuff the university wouldn't tolerate, and probably rightfully so. Right. We needed a separate legal entity that actually could collect money and pay contractors with it. And that came out to DeNovo. And now that company that was in the nonprofit actually recently spun out is now its own for-profit huh. nice. company. And it will continue to operate in a way that that makes sense for now that the risk has been taken out it doesn't yeah yeah that makes sense what i like about the three different examples that you've provided is that they they each speak to the transition to a a living entity you know be it be it a nonprofit, be it a, a partner be it a hospital be it a private technology startup um, but you know that there's an organism you know an entity that is going to continue onwards and is going to build on the momentum of the success that you have and maybe they just needed that initial push or that initial research to take the risk out of the equation. That's a recipe that is very compelling. And I think one that we can share with a lot of, of researchers um, who might be listening to this podcast. Maybe two last questions for you, Eric, if I may. Looking back on this, this whole arc of your work creating ict for d as a, a research space, information communication technology for developing regions, do you have any lessons learned or, or overall insights on that effort? I think it was quite a feat to bring together the various different perspectives of computer science and international development organizations and you know economists and such. Any, any thoughts looking back on that effort? Well, I'm certainly proud that it worked out and it was very, very fulfilling. I will say that the thing that surprised me at the time but doesn't surprise me in retrospect is how much appetite students had for this kind of work. Oh, yeah. They just needed permission to do it. <laughs> Maybe that applies to you, actually. How did I think about it? It does. I, can, I cannot even tell you. You know, I, I studied engineering. I went to Berkeley. I thought I wanted to do good for the world, but I don't really know how. So maybe I'll, I'll actually, maybe I'll study search systems was the first thing that brought me to Google. Um, and I heard wind of this crazy research group that was going to Ghana and helping doctors out. And I was through tear that I realized that this was a field that one could have a career in, you know, be it an academic career or a career elsewhere. And then the moment I knew it was a possible career path was the moment I went into it. And I think that never would have happened except that I, I stumbled across some of the students in your group. Well, I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> Only two. <laughs> I think it's definitely changed my life. Eric, do you have any advice for young professionals, people who are just starting their career and hoping to use technology to do some good in the world? The first thing I would say is focus on a real specific problem in a specific area and not as much on a technology. Technology can help lots of ways, but usually when we go into an area, the technology we're bringing is not the one we use in the end. <laughs> it can be frustrating at times, but you can still try to solve the actual problem, but you have to discover what the problem is. It's really a process of discovery. So the second thing I would say is realize it's a process of discovery and don't go in assuming you know the answer. You do not know the answer. And the people you talk to won't know the answer directly because you can't even ask them the right questions at first. So true. Eric, the reason I, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself for some of the words that you spoke is that problem that you highlight is exactly the problem that I started out my career 
in this space. And I'm, I'm not sure how much you know, but definitely drawing inspiration from my work at, at Tier. I continued onwards to work in Ghana. And my thought was, hey, I have this great technology. Let me start a nonprofit. Let me build you know, an organization and a group to, to work on this technology, which is going to be great. Two years later, and you know, a lot of uh, missed income later, I realized that it was just the wrong approach. Computers and hospitals—it was like there was no, there's nowhere to put the computers. They weren't connected. Uh, there was too many missing pieces in in that infrastructure. So while I I knew that this was an area where I could have a career, I ended up pivoting quite hard uh, into focusing on on mobile phones at the community level, which is where I've been on ever since then. But I never, I never would have gotten into this space if not for the inspiration that I got from Tier. And I think people need to realize the pivot is part of the process. It's not a failure. It's actually part of the process. And that's what aid agencies will eventually need to figure out as well. You want to reward groups that are good at pivoting, not penalize them for it. Eric, I love those words. And I love the, the wisdom from Silicon Valley that that brings with it. And it also brings a certain salve to my, my wounds and my history uh, behind that initial work that I did in my career. Thank you so much, Eric, for your time on the podcast. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. I appreciate the, the words of wisdom that you've shared with us. My pleasure. I'm glad you're still in the space. I'm not sure if you could tell, but I really did not expect that conversation to end the way that it did. I don't realize how much it would mean to me to hear Eric tell me that the pivot is the path. To know that all those mistakes that I made early on in my career were part of what set me up for success in the work that I'm doing today. Wow, that felt really good to hear. Let me share a few more tidbits on Eric's legacy in digital health. In 2008, the Aravind Eye Hospital was awarded the Gates Award for Global Health. At the time, it was the world's largest prize for international health, honoring extraordinary efforts to improve health in developing countries. In that year, Aravind provided care to almost 2.5 million patients and performed more than 280,000 surgeries, resulting in a dramatic decrease in the overall cases of blindness in India. One of the key reasons for their success? Their eye camps and the high-speed broadband connections to the central hospitals which they built with the help of Eric and his students. I'd also like to share a note that I got from Professor Curtis Hamrell at the University of Washington, one of Eric's former students, who's continuing on with a research agenda in ICTD and internet access. Curtis writes, Eric is literally foundational to the modern topic of applying computer science to problems of development. He, along with others, kicked off some of the first major research agendas in the area. Specifically, his focus on the potential impact of systems work and associated core technology development, married with strong social analysis, is now the norm for interventionist ICTD. If you'd like to learn more about Eric, you can find some great talks that he's given on our show notes at aidevolved.com. And if you have any comments or questions or just want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at aidevolved or send us an email at podcast at aidevolved.com. We'll see you next week.